This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. I hope you're well. Do get in touch if you are listening, particularly if you're listening abroad and you want to come on the radio and play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? You can email me, matt.chorley at times.ready. You don't have to be abroad. If you just want to do a... It's a general knowledge quiz, loosely connected to 10 cabinet jobs. And you can come on the radio and say hello, matt.chorley at times.ready. That would be lovely. Coming up, what does an ambassador do all day? I speak to Matthew Barzen, who is Barack Obama's US ambassador ambassador to Britain. He discusses the special relationship, leadership and why a tennis match that he organised may have led to Brexit. He let David Cameron and Boris Johnson use his tennis court and we all know what happened after that. Right, that's coming up in a moment. But first, our columnist panel, no Finkelvich this week. I'm sorry to say David Ivanovich and da- Danny Finkelstein are quarantining after their week touring the nightclubs of Portugal. Uh, so instead, we kick off today with Tom McTake from The Atlantic and Andrew Warnsley from The Observer. Uh, right now, Tom, let's start with your uh, a, a incredible um, a profile of Boris Johnson, which is, is in the latest edition of The Atlantic uh, magazine. You spent quite a lot of time with him. There's quite a lot in there to pick out. But one of the things I particularly wanted to focus on, partly because we've got the interview with Matthew Barson later, who's the um, who was uh, Barack Obama's ambassador to the UK, was... The special relationship, and normally it's Americans who are fed up with this thing, but they feel they have to do it for needy Brits. But it, you found out that Boris Johnson's no fan of it either. Yeah, I was really struck by this. It just it just cropped up in a conversation with um, with, with with one of his aides, and it, it just said that on this one of these calls with Biden, Biden had obviously used this phrase. Uh, presumably he'd been sort of told by his aides, you must use this because the Brits get very upset if you don't say it, that we have this special relationship. And Boris just interjected and said he didn't like it. And uh, I, I don't know whether he said stop using it, but he just said, oh, you know, I don't like it. He hates, he hates that phrase. It makes Britain sound so needy and weak. And I just thought, oh, that's, that's great. You know, that's just a little insight into what these conversations, what these calls must be like, because we never hear it, do we? We never, we never know exactly you know, how they talk to each other. One of the constant um, themes uh, of, of, you know, chats with, with Johnson's aides were that he is, he is just like he is 
um, you know, with with us on on TV, just all the time. So he he uses humour to try and crack through uh, the formality of uh, of these uh, calls with with world leaders. So, I mean, God knows how they take it, but he he, he seems to crack jokes and, and and sort of surprise them. Uh, uh, Andrew, what do you make of this? Is it fi- even the Brits now fed up with the idea of uh, of the special relationship? Well, I think it's the phrase, and about this, I think Boris Johnson is right. Um, I mean, having reported from both sides of the Atlantic over the course of my career, you did tend to hear the phrase special relationship much more in London than in Washington. And when you did hear it in Washington, other than on formal occasions, the US president trying to be nice uh, to the UK, it was often used rather ironically, if not sarcastically. And Boris Johnson's <laughs> not the first uh, Brit to... Um, I've been worried that he does make us look rather weedy and, and needy. Uh, when Sir Christopher Mayer was our, our man in uh, Washington, our ambassador over there, he actually banned uh, his staff at the embassy from using it because he was one of those who agreed with that. Um, we remember, remember Theresa May? Um, she was Prime Minister not that long ago. Um, you remember how <laughs> needy she looked in being desperate to get a visit at the White House and sort of securing it on the promise of a really very early, and most people thought premature, invite to Donald Trump to a state visit in the UK, which I rather rudely called at the time, pimping out the Queen. So I think it has been a difficulty. The bigger question though, for post-Brexit Britain, is is it gonna manage to carve out some independent role for itself in the world? We'll actually need the special relationship even more, because although yeah. I, I agree entirely, it does make us sound a bit needy and weedy. Of course, we do have very strong ties of language, history, uh, a lot of cooperation on the really hard security issues with America. And in terms of our overall foreign policy, actually, if anything, we seem to be cleaving closer to the United <laughs> States at the moment, because the question for us is outside the EU, where else do we go? Do you agree with that, Tom? Yeah, I think that's that, that's absolutely right. What's what's fascinating is that Boris Johnson has this reputation problem of being in, in the US of being sort of just a, a British version of Trump, and he, uh, you know, is is concerned about this because it's a problem for him personally, and he's got a kind of ego problem about it. He doesn't want to be seen as that, uh, but also a political one in that you know he's having to deal with a democratic controlled. Congress and and White House, um, but if you look at the policies that we we are now almost completely aligned with the Biden administration far more than any other country in Europe uh, on whether it's on climate change or Iran um, or trying to turn the G seven which is coming up this week into uh, what they're sort of calling uh, uh, Biden's calling an alliance of democracies I think we're calling it the D ten or the D eleven you're sort of expanding it into uh, into like-minded countries around the world. So we've invited Australia and South Korea and, and India. Now, the French and the Germans are concerned about this because they, you know, they basically see it as all you're creating is, a, a you know, an English-speaking club, um, which is obviously better for, for, for Britain and for, for, for the US. Um, but it's a Biden idea. He wants a summit of democracies this year or next year. So we're, we're, we're sort of, we're purposely sort of pushing ourselves into closer to the US as we drift away from Europe. I mean, another example of that, uh, Matt, I agree entirely with that from from Tom, is dispatching one of our our new aircraft carriers, which, by the way, 
uh, require US fighters at the moment because we haven't got enough of our own to put on the decks of these aircraft carriers. But we're <laughs> scratching one of the new aircraft carriers to the South China Sea. Now, is that really going to rattle uh, the Chinese, one British aircraft carrier turning up in their neighbourhood? Probably not. And that's really designed much more than trying to make the uh, Chinese feel some awe at the strength of British naval power. It's surely more designed to impress the Americans that we will do our bit in the Pacific neighbourhood if we can. And I suppose, how big a test is this uh, this week, Tom, looking ahead to the uh, the G7 on Friday? Well, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we'll, we'll be live in Cornwall on uh, on the show on Friday too. But um, it's sort of Boris Johnson, it's taken a while, obviously, because of COVID. It's sort of, you know, all of his um, in, di- diplomatic interactions so far have been uh, on Zoom. It's his first big test of putting Britain on the world stage. Yeah, I I think it is important. I think this year is quite important for for, uh, Johnson in that he has the G7 here and he has the climate change summit up in Glasgow. I think they're important both uh, for the world looking at Britain and Britain's uh, sense of itself looking out into the world. So, you know, we are trying to say to the world, look, I know we had this sort of crazy spell between 2016 and 2019 when we were just sort of arguing amongst ourselves and there was stasis and crisis and proroguing a parliament and, you know, all of this, and it just looked chaotic. So we have to say we're back we're stable again we're a place where you can come and invest and trust and you know we we can we can still do things and you know cornwall's probably a pretty good choice as well you know you'll have all these aerial shots of britain looking great uh, so i imagine there's a big part of that it's it's this kind of perception i remember thinking about this there's this uh, line in um keeping up appearances where Hyacinth, Hyacinth's having a go at Richard uh, for, for not enjoying himself while he's cutting the grass. And he says, well, I don't enjoy it. And he says, well, that's all the more reason to show people that you do enjoy it because you have to, <laughs> you have to look like you can afford a gardener, but you just choose not to have one. And, <laughs> and that's, I, I kind of feel that that's Britain. You know, we can't afford the, you know, the, the, the planes on the boat and we can't afford, uh, you you know, we we don't influence Europe anymore. But we've got to show ourselves to be to 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 uh, that we can still act on the world. And I think for Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales as well, he's he's also trying to say, look, we still matter. You can still do stuff as Britain that you can't do uh, alone as Scotland. So I think it is actually quite an important year. So I kind of I think maybe Hyacinth was onto something. Well, well, it's, it, I mean, it's basically Tony Blair is Hyacinth uh, uh, Bucket is it, it's something because in the piece in your piece of the Atlantic, Tony Blair says telling everyone everything is fine is not the same as everything is fine. But that's actually <laughs> yeah. Boris, that's Boris Johnson's entire sort of modus operandi: go around telling everyone is great, and to some extent. You know that works, and people, you know, it can, that can affect you know consumer confidence and all, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, one cloud hanging over the G seven this week, though, uh, Andrew Wardsley, is the is this row over uh, the foreign aid cut. Uh, yes. you, I know you wrote about it in the Observer at the weekend, and it's sort of the, the rebellion had an, a bit of an abortive start yesterday. But there's this debate in the House of Commons uh, later on it, and it does. It's a reminder, although Boris Johnson got that big. Um, 80 seat majority it's not as safe as as it looks if you if you pick the right subject uh no i agree with that completely matt and it it also i mean if we just talk about uh, the parliamentary conservative party uh, to start with i think this particular rebellion is fired by several things uh, there's a group of conservative mps who don't think they should go around 
breaking election promises. And this was a, a promise in the Tory manifesto. There's those like Andrew Mitchell and others who care deeply about international aid, combined with others who think, and I agree with them, actually Britain had developed from Tony Blair's time onwards through Gordon Brown, through uh, Theresa May, through David Cameron, a, a reputation as a, a sort of superpower of soft power in the realm of international development. And they're worried um, that that's being thrown away. And then there were some names in the, the potential rebellion of yesterday, like Sir Edward Lee. Now, Sir Edward Lee is nobody's hand-wringing liberal softies. Sir Edward, is, he sometimes calls himself the last Thatcherite in the, the House of Commons. He's, he's very much a man of the right of the Conservative Party, but also one uh, fired by moral principles on this issue that you shouldn't be trying to balance Britain's books on the back of the world's poor. And I think it's also fired up by the fact that government has simply been very cowardly about this. I mean, sticking to the UN targets for the age you should spend as a proportion of your national income is enshrined in law. And the government, fearing it was going to lose a vote, has never had the bravery to come to the House of Commons and say, we want to change the law. They just kept swerving about. And this is why uh, Mr Mitchell and his rebel posse had to try and find a technical way of ambushing the government that ultimately failed uh, because the speaker ruled the amendment wasn't within the scope of the particular piece of legislation they were hoping to amend. But Lindsay Hoyle made it very clear he's on their side in principle that the government should bring a vote. And this issue simply won't go away, I think, so long as they keep trying to swerve it. There'll be a vote today. Now, that can't force, the nature of the vote today can't force the government to change its mind. But there will be other opportunities. The House of Lords may well have opportunities to have a go at the government. And also, because they are breaking a target that's entrained in law, there may well be opportunities to take the government to court and try and get a verdict that the government's behaved unlawfully. So certainly not going away. And it's certainly rather embarrassing for the government that this has all come to a head in the same week we're hosting the G7 in Cornwall. One final thing I just wanted to touch on with you is this uh, opinion poll out from uh, uh, Ipsos Moy, the Evening Standard report. It's on... Keir Starmer, it's bad news for Keir Starmer. His ratings have plunged to the same low level as Jeremy Corbyn's at the same stage of his leadership. Uh, Manchester Mayor uh, uh, Andy Burnham is seen by the public and Labour voters as a better potential Prime Minister. Um, uh, big drops in the number of people who think that Keir Starmer is a capable leader, down 18 points since September to just 26%. Uh, 17.4 for having sound judgment. Uh, and being a good representative on the world stage, down uh, to, what, 25% too. Um, all this in the wake of his um, interview with Piers Morgan that was going to turn everything around, Tom. What could, what could the poor man do? Even even welling up on the telly doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I, I am surprised about this. You know, I, I, I was one of those who thought when he was elected, that it was a really quite important moment in British politics in that you had, um, you know, talk, going back and thinking about, you know, the stability of, of Britain uh, in the eyes of the world, you suddenly went from having a situation where you didn't know what was going to go on with Britain, whether we were going to leave the EU or the single market or not, or what was going to happen, will we reverse it? But also you had this hanging th threat in the eyes of many of, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and really, really quite radical kind of uh, alternative and suddenly with Starmer and with Brexit 
sorted uh, to some extent. You know, you had a, a semblance of stability. I thought it was, and I thought, you know, him being a clearly competent man, um, a sensible man who clearly could be prime minister, he would do the job. Um, I, I sort of thought that, that would change things more dramatically for Labour than it has, you know, and I think it seems that he's trying to answer the wrong question, you know, or the, what the, the wrong question that the public have about him. Nobody, nobody sort of doubts, it seems, that Labour are the nice guys who might cry uh, about about things. They kind of the problem lies elsewhere. You know, nobody thinks Boris is a particularly uh, nice man in that regard, but they like him as um, they like him as a prime minister for other reasons. So I wonder whether they need to start addressing more seriously those concerns, you know, concerns about, you know, whether Labour Party actually likes people, likes ordinary people, um, you know, likes the country that it's seeking to, to lead. <laughs> um, maybe it's maybe it's that. I don't know. But I but I, I am surprised about that because I think Keir is, uh, you know, is ev- evidently a sort of decent man who and a competent man. Well, of course, that, that last point you made, Tom, I mean, is one of the things he specifically set out to address. I mean, there's a reason he and other members of the Shadow Cabinet appear in front of Union Jacks a lot. I mean, that's trying to send a message to voters that, unlike the previous management of the Labour Party, uh, we actually do quite like the country we aspire to govern. I mean, I'm, I'm in two minds about this. Uh, on the one hand, yeah, this is not great for the Labour Party. You'd want to offer Keir Starmer. You'd want to be in a, a better position than those polls that you uh, read out, Matt, were suggesting. On the other hand, politics has become extraordinarily fickle um, uh, in <laughs> recent times. I mean, just six months ago, I remind you, Boris had had such a, an error-strewn autumn, and then we had all the fiasco about whether we were going to have a normal Christmas or not. And you guys will remember, it wasn't hard to find Conservative MPs last autumn saying Boris will be out by Christmas. And his approval ratings had plunged and Keir Starmer was often ahead in polls for preferred prime minister. Uh, That's reversed. And of course, one of the reasons I think we can all agree on this is the vaccination programme. I mean, every day you have 300,000 to 500,000 people get a jab in the arm and come out of the vaccination centre feeling much, much better and optimistic about the world. And fairly or not, whether or not the government and Boris particularly deserves the credit for that, uh, the voters are likely to give them uh, that credit. So I think we would have to emerge a bit further from this uh, vaccination bounce, which Boris has undoubtedly had, before we could come to a more balanced judgment as to where we are. But your broad point is right. I mean, Keir Starmer and the Labour Party would want to be looking much better than they are at the moment. And, Andrew, given that you're, I mean, two two of your great books, The Servants of the People and then The the, uh, End of the Party, on the sort of the rise and fall of new Labour under Tony Blair, when you look at Keir Starmer, does he strike you as a man who can repeat the trick that Tony Blair had? Does he have deep, you know, and we could talk about, you know, flags here or when's the right time to come up with a policy idea or whatever, but does it feel like the guts of the man is someone who has got what it takes to take Labour back to power? Well, that's a really good question because he concentrated in his early period in ticking some boxes, you know, I'm not the other guy, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn, I'm serious, I'm professional, I can lead a competent opposition. And there was a general consensus that he'd done that. But history suggests not just the way Tony Blair took Labour back to power in 1997 and with a landslide, 
but also when Harold Wilson won for Labour in 1964. But you need more than that. First of all, uh, everybody will say Clement Attlee in response to this point, but that was a long time ago. You do need a, a leader with some charisma, some ability to uh, create phrases that sum up your ideas in sentences that can cut through to the electorate. And I think that is an outstanding challenge for Keir Starmer. I can't really think of a zinger that he can claim as <laughs> you know, Tony Blair had tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Now you can say, well, that's just a glib soundbite, et cetera, et cetera. But it was one of those phrases that encapsulated his attitudes, and obviously a lot of voters found it attractive, in a single sentence that cut through to the public. And the other thing you have to do, have to do as a Labour leader, uh, Labour had this in 1945 when it won, in 1964 and in 1997. You have to have a sense of a positive modernising project for Britain that is attractive to a sufficient number of voters that you can create an election winning coalition. And that, and this problem I think goes deeper than just the uh, identity of the individual who's leading the party, Labour has not yet worked out a coherent vision of the future, which people will say, that looks rather attractive. And you know what, I actually prefer it to the conservative philosophy of the future. Tom McTagan, Andrew Rawdsley there joining us uh, on the podcast. Right, coming up next, it's my interview with Matthew Barson. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now then, in December 2013, Matthew Barzen took up one of the most important positions in US diplomacy, Washington's ambassador to the UK. He was Barack Obama's man in London. During his time here, he would end up witnessing some of the most turbulent periods of British political history as the country went through first the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, then the EU, then the uh, general election in 2015, the EU referendum in 2016, another general election in 2017, and one highly memorable US presidential contest. 
Well, I caught up with Matthew Barson to uh, 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 reflect on what he learned about the power dynamics of the special relationship, his theory about what leadership really means, and his new book, The Power of Giving Away Power. But I started by asking Matthew Barson what an ambassador does all day. You know, it's funny. I... um... Before I took the job in uh, when I first served in Sweden, I had no idea. Uh, and, and the perception, I think, if you watch movies and stuff, is that it's just one big cocktail party or something like that. And I must admit that was a little bit my misconception. But the, the great Republican friend of mine, uh, who served as Assistant Secretary of State under Colin Powell, he sort of took me aside and took me under his wing and explained how it all worked. Uh, great guy named Walter Kansteiner. Anyway. Um, The way I would sum it up is at the State Department, they have this wonderful tradition uh, of printing out your daily schedule on a little, oh, I forget the whole A4, A3 British system. We would say a three by five. uh, Small, that's like A5. Thank you, A5. There we go. A5. Um, Your day, and it begins at the top. It sort of looks like an Outlook page for your day. And I would uh, color code the various meetings and, and it was green for promoting trade and it was blue for sort of government to government foreign office sort of work. And it was purple for cultural diplomacy, uh, yellow for uh, engaging with the press and then gray for internal meetings. And uh, that was kind of an arbitrary color scale that, that I picked. Um, Anyway, and and you look at the day and the day would just be a rainbow of those things I just mentioned. And it was kind of great. So you shifted gears a lot between those. But but that was it in a nutshell. And so so it wasn't all cocktail parties, but there was probably there's probably a bit of that. And what what about your you were you were um ambassador in the UK during quite a turbulent time in British politics. Uh yeah. it, 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 it um it has to be said. And so what what is your sort of day to day interaction with the UK government, Downing Street, that sort of thing? Are you the sort of point man between London and Washington? How how does that relationship work? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I um, my predecessor joked with me as as I arrived to London late summer 2013. He said, Matthew, let me just think. I reflect back over his four years. He said, we had the London Olympics, a royal wedding and the Diamond Jubilee. And you're going to have Scottish referendum, the what became known as the Brexit referendum, and then what is sure to be a contentious 2016 presidential race back home you know, good luck. Um, <laughs> but I think, look, the, the, you know, the, and that he was right in the sense that most of my three and a half years was spent not so much, you know, does official Washington, let's say the White House and the State Department get along with official United Kingdom, like, of course, and there are disagreements and we can get to that later. But that stuff's largely um, not a lot of drama there. Uh, the big issues of my time were, people talking at each other, past each other, basically division within the United Kingdom and division within the United States and what these two democracies are trying to wrestle with and deal with that. What do you mean when people people within the United Kingdom talking past each other? I suppose if your job is to sort of sum up the mood uh, and the position in the UK and, and sort of feed that back to Washington, what do you, what do you mean about people talking past each other? Well, I mean, if you look at the should the UK belong in the EU? I mean, it would just happen. Yeah. We talked about cocktail parties earlier. I mean, 
no quicker way to end a cocktail party or in a dinner party to bring up that. And you would see <laughs> colleagues, friends, families just split on these fault lines that when I headed in 2013, either they weren't there or they were sort of hidden. But boy, did that debate bring them out. And we were, you know, had different issues back home in the States, but you would you would see that same divide. And so that's what really dominated my time. And one of the, I think, dangers of if you limit your perspective to just the official government relationship, you'll miss a lot. For instance, the Pew, the wonderful Pew research people put out a uh, a survey of basically what do young people think about the United States? Uh, and that report came out as I arrived in in London. And I think 39 countries out of 40 young people, especially during the Obama time, which is kind of unsurprising, um, had a more favorable and positive view of the United States and what it's up to in the world than their parents or grandparents' generation. And the one country that didn't fit that model was the United Kingdom. Now, the good news was that the sort of grandparents and parents' generation had a highly favorable view of the United States, but young people, not so much. Um, and so I went to 200 over my time, 200 different basic, mostly sixth form colleges to do these workshops with a hundred students at a time and would just ask them, what is your number one frustration uh, or confusion about the United States and what we're up to? And I learned a lot from that. Yeah, and you, in your book, which we'll come to, but you talk about, you know, you get them to write down on a piece of paper what was something, the sort of positive feeling towards America and a negative feeling. What, what, what was the overwhelming sort of message that you got back? Well, I think half, if I have 20, I have them here with me in my office. I have 20,000 uh, A5 cards with either doodles or words on them and half of them. So 10,000, half of the young women and men wrote down or drew a picture of the word gun. Wow. So that was number one. Wow. Number two, so that was half. And then number two and three were tied basically for police brutality and racism this is 2013, 14, 15, 16. Um, and what I would show my, my fellow sort of older people uh, in diplomacy, I'd say notice that none of the big words, none of the top five are what we would consider foreign policy. You know, and they did care about things like surveillance and privacy and our support of Israel and you know, drones and all those sorts of things that we talked about uh, as diplomats. But my big aha was... Domestic policy, as we would say back home, is foreign policy. And it's really interesting that, yeah, the, the domestic affairs of another country sort of get so much cut through. And what about, what were they more positive about? Or what was the flip side of the cars? The flip side was fun. We spent about 55 minutes on the negative, not not to be negative, but I just think more energy lives in difference than it does in, in similarity. And uh, the, the happy bit, as we put it, uh, <laughs> less dramatic. There wasn't one big thing, but I, food, diversity, opportunity were the big three. And what would you, did you ever do the exercise yourself? What would you have put on the two sides of the card? Well, I did. I mean, so these young uh, British people would, would always ask me at the end of the session, hey, what do, what do, um, what do American teenagers think? And I'd say, well, I had three teenagers, my children in the house. But other than that, I didn't see many American teenagers during my time in London. But I was, I wanted to kind of, you know, answer that question. So I, when I came back to Louisville, Kentucky, which is home, I mean, I had no title or reason to go do this, but 
uh, the schools were nice and I didn't want to stop because <laughs> listening to and learning from young people is really energizing. And so I started doing it um, here and across the river in Indiana and asking American students, same format, very different answers. And I didn't ask them about the UK. I asked them about their own country. Yeah. Number one fear and frustration was division, uh, economic, racial, uh, and political. So number one fear, division. Number one, followed closely by loneliness. That's and then... Yeah. And then the number one positive or hope or thing that inspires you about your own country to Americans was uh, diversity followed closely by freedom. And if you think about the, the, the two top uh, spots, diversity and division, they share the same root, right? Div. So what they love most and fear most has something to do with separateness. And that's what I've been the good parts of separateness, being distinct, being your own person, uh, but then the downside of separateness, feeling cut off from others. And that's really what made me write the book and what it's trying to reconcile and resolve. Well, I suppose that's that's a big part of the, the, the job of being a diplomat is sort of bringing together the two countries involved, you know, acknowledging that you don't always agree on everything, but trying to build that 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 common ground. I mean, obviously, I can't legally, I'm not allowed to speak to a former uh, American ambassador to the UK without using the phrase special relationship. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> that's that's ticked off. That's ticked off now. But where where were the you, you touched on them briefly before, but what what were the tensions for you that you had to deal with? I mean, clearly. Clearly, Brexit was a big part of that. And right in the centre of that Brexit campaign was that, that moment when uh, President Obama came to the UK, used that phrase that Britain would be at the back of the queue uh, in the event of a mm. trade deal for... Uh, tried to do a trade deal with the US. And, and then Boris Johnson, of course, now our Prime Minister, writing a piece in, in a newspaper uh, referring to uh, President Obama's part Kenyan heritage. Was that the... You know, there's so much caught up in all of that, but was that the sort of the toughest Gosh. time for you in that relationship? Matt, you're Matt, you're bringing it all back in the in the uh, in a uh, yeah. I mean, you hit on some big ones, um, but you know, you started off by saying uh, it's sort of appropriately sort of poking fun, I think, at that term special relationship, and and you were right in the sense that, uh, and I actually love it, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, but when I when I just when I came over to the UK, uh, there was a British friend uh, or a British acquaintance living in New York who, who emailed me and he said, hey, some free advice. Uh, uh, don't trust the British press. They will build you up and tear you down. That was number one. And number two um, was, uh, please don't be one of those people who bangs on about the special relationship. It is hackneyed. It is a cliche. Uh, it's not true anymore. So, okay. Um, and I ignored, I ignored both of his bits of advice. Um, and especially as it relates to special relationship, he was right in the sense that if you say that word, which I did a lot to a crowd of, let's say a hundred people, you know, half the group, uh, nods their head without even thinking and half the group rolls their eyes. Right. But in both cases, no one's doing a lot of thinking. And so what I try to do this is hard for radio listeners because it's sort of a visual thing. But if you picture, Matt, one of those two by two quadrant things, you know, where you have yeah. like a north, south, east, west axis. So if you picture like the word special on the east, like what is the opposite of the word special on the west in our diagram? And let's just use the word routine, you know? Yeah. And then what is the opposite? So let's put 
special on the east. Let's put relationship up in the north. What is the opposite of a relationship down south? I would say transaction. So the upper right-hand quadrant, which is usually the good answer in these kind of diagrams, is special relationship. The exact opposite of that is routine transaction. And I actually think that unlocks some interesting things about the phrase because so much of our lives um, enabled by technology that's been wonderful is we just, in personal and in work, we try to make so much of our life, we, by avoiding friction, we're just like, let's turn everything into a routine transaction. Trivial example being like Facebook and those other services will let you say happy birthday to anyone you've ever met without having to really try. Right. So it's easy, but, but no, there's a cost to that, I think, because there's no energy lives there. Um, and so if you take Churchill's phrase, which he meant in a pretty intense time, you know, he said, when you're up against Stalin and the Iron Curtain, it was in that speech yeah. where he's like, how are we in the West, as we called it then, going to stand up to this consolidated menacing power? And he didn't say, let's consolidate our own menacing power on our side. He said, no, let's form millions of special relationships. Oh, it's been it's been a bit bumpy over the last few years, but with... Yeah, Brexit, and then um, that other guy who uh, who replaced Barack Obama in in the uh, White House. What state do you think the special relationship is in right now? And at a time when, you know, the whole world's sort of crying out for leadership, what role can Britain under Boris Johnson and America under Joe Biden play in that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. Um, I think that the 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 real energy of the special relationship does not lie in uh agreement right and i i uh the the front page of the sun i i know because it's framed and sitting here in my office um six days after i arrive um there was the vote on use of force in syria as you remember and cameron recalls parliament early to take a vote on it we're having a similar debate back home in washington and uh it doesn't pass Right. And so the front page of the sun has a death notice for the special relationship, beloved offspring of FDR and Churchill, you know, Thatcher and Reagan, blah, 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 funeral to be held at the French embassy. And it was, uh, you know, funny, uh, I think not true, but I think it, it plays into this idea that if we're not always agreeing, that's a problem. And if you think about a marriage or a friendship, uh, you know, you deal with disagreement all the time and that's really positive and a source of energy. And I think the phrase that I must have said a thousand times and diplomats are sort of trained to say it. If you listen to people older than you, they all say it. Um, it's always said with this terrible tone of voice, which uh, is the sort of often wrong, never in doubt tone of voice that diplomats can take. <laughs> and the phrase is, usually followed or preceded by throat clearing. Um, there is no daylight between the United States and the United Kingdom as it relates to fill in the blank, right? And, and you think about that, it's like, what a ludicrous standard for agreement. <laughs> ludicrous. And of course there's daylight. And if there weren't daylight, I mean, picture two soldiers shoulder to shoulder, picture two people dancing, you know, any image of partnership and connection, um, in all of those, no, but in all of those, there is daylight between the people. And if yeah. there weren't, it wouldn't be all that interesting. It'd be slightly creepy. So 
I, I think that's, and how you look at things, right? I, I think, and, and, and I try to get to this in the book, like how we visualize ourselves and those around us is hugely important. Um, and so if you think daylight is a scary thing and that gaps in agreement ought to be, you know, if you ever made clay when you're little, like get every little air bubble out of your little clay pot so it doesn't blow up in the kiln. Like that is a worldview that leads to a certain way of thinking, feeling, and behaving that I think is very destructive. But there are other ways of looking at the world where daylight isn't so scary. So as you've mentioned your book, Matthew Barton, let's uh, take a look at it. The Power of Giving Away Power, How the Best Leaders Learn to Let Go. And it's sort of drawing on your experience as a, as a diplomat and then before that, I mean, in fact, especially uh, so, uh, when you were a fundraiser for Barack Obama and the idea that actually the sort of command and control uh, pyramid that we're probably quite used to, particularly in politics, but also in business of, you know, the guy at the top or the woman at the top controls everything. And what you discovered... I, mean, I don't know, maybe it felt, reading the book, almost by accident, was that actually if you cede some of that control, you get more buy-in from people, uh, you know, whether that's in donations or in decision-making or profitability or, or whatever it might be in the situation. But yeah. the thing that really struck me, and I can, there's part of me that can see how this idea can work in business, in that uh, um, the idea of, you know, collaboration and letting individuals who know what they're doing get on with what they're doing. But in politics... And maybe it's just because we need to change the way we think about politics. But ultimately, you know, if something goes well or badly in the UK, we look to Boris Johnson, uh, the prime minister. Uh, y- y- you know, if something goes wrong, he's got to answer for it. He's the one who appears at the press conference or the or in the House of Commons. And the same is true of Joe Biden in the White House. You know, if if something goes wrong on his watch, it's him who stays. He can't say, well, I... I let the constellation bloom and sometimes that doesn't work. You know, we, we, we look to the person at the top. So do you think this, this can be applied to, to politics? I definitely do. And, and, and I agree it is, it is hard uh, on both sides of the Atlantic right now with our national politics, blue versus red on both sides. Not exactly. Um, I'll practice some British understanding. Not uh not overly cooperative, maybe. <laughs> um, but um, but let's just take it one step back. Let's just take it within the Democratic Party or within the Republican Party or within Labour or within the Tories. Um, how what what does a meeting look like? Let's get really practical and tactical here. What does a meeting look like sitting around those various tables? And we can start to practice these habits, these constellation habits of how you think of yourself as a star and other people as the star, um, just within our own parties and start to redevelop these habits of interdependence, which is really what the book is about. And there's this amazing woman sort of lost to history um, who is sort of the matron saint of this mindset, Mary Parker Follett. And I won't go too deep into it, but um, she's writing a hundred years ago right after America, and she spent a lot of time in London at the London School of Economics, trying to figure out how America or how the UK coming out of a pandemic with economic and political and social division and uncertainty. And what she said 100 years ago is hugely helpful to us today. And here's what she said, it can begin at your next meeting, you know, virtual or real meeting. She said, there's four possible outcomes of a meeting, and only one of them is worthwhile. And think about this, Matt, in the context of politicians you know sitting around with their own teams forget the other side for a moment number one you come into that meeting and you want to win well that's no good she says because someone else is going to lose why are they even at the meeting 
Number two, the flip of that, you acquiesce. Oh, Jill or John seems so fired up. I'll just let her or him carry the day. That's no good. Why did you even show up to the meeting? Number three, tempting, compromise. And she says, no, that's no good either because compromise is basically small acquiescence from everybody, partial victories, partial acquiescence. She insists that the only meaningful outcome of a meeting is co-creation where you make something together as a group. And we all know that feeling. It is magic when it happens. And the funny and strange and true thing about making something with a group of people is that you are in it, right? In that idea you made, it is in you, but you are in no way diminished by it. You haven't sort of lost a part of yourself in it. And I think that kind of making policy on the government side, if we behave, some of the worst fights in our political systems happen within the party, as you know. <laughs> so you can't just blame the other side. It's like, no, we do this to ourselves. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you an example, real life story. If, if, if we bring this pyramid mindset, this up, down, in, out mindset to everything. If you ask 10 people, what's the opposite of winning? Everyone says losing. You say, okay, what's the opposite of winning and losing? Nine out of 10 of us say not playing, sitting it out, right? Yeah. One in 10 of us says, and these are the constellation thinkers natively, they say playing, laughing, learning, loving, being, all the verbs we actually value in our lives, right? Um, I mean, you, can, you can't win a marriage, you can't win a career, you can't win parenting. Um, and, you know, I saw this in my time, I haven't said this before, but this has real practical results. If we think that winning and losing, that if you're not winning and losing, that you're doing nothing, that has real world impact. I mean, we had David Cameron asked if he could use our uh, tennis court at Winfield House, which is a lovely tennis court and um, uh, highly secure, as you uh, would imagine. I should expect Winfield House is the U.S. ambassador's residence, which is very, very nice. Oh, in, I'm sorry. In, in yes, Regent's yes, Park I should not be London. so presumptuous. <laughs> Central London, uh, lovely uh, place, and. So from time to time, I would let him come and, and do that. And this particular time, he wanted Boris Johnson to come. And, and I'm not revealing anything here. I mean, in the papers would say that he's trying to convince at this time, um, Boris Johnson to not take the side of the Brexiteers and, and advocate for Brexit. And, and he was sort of publicly on the fence about which way he might go. And so I said, please come over. And um, and they did, and they played tennis. And then I caught up with them both separately afterwards. Um, and I remember Boris saying to me after David had left and I said, how'd it go? And I, you know, um, I wasn't trying to butt in. It was a private conversation. And, um, and he said, God, it's unbelievable. He, he, he couldn't not win. He had to beat me <laughs> and he beat me badly in tennis. And we all do this. And it just struck me. It's like, oh, does that really matter? I don't know. Um, I mean, there maybe, are lots of historical forces at play, but the idea of like, we can't let go of winning and we all do this and not always on the tennis court, not always with big national things at stake, but it, it, it is, there is an alternate way of looking uh, yeah. at the world. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.